Whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> hey. Wow, look at that. Now, in case you don't recognize who that is, that's David Godwin, Pastor David Godwin, right on the right, and then Pastor Justin there. That was when they were graduating from elementary school. Soon to both be pastors at the City Life Church, so. I may or may not have been looking for that on Facebook while you were doing your wrap-up. Jordan Johnson, always ready up there in the booth. I'm texting him, JJ, we gotta put it up there. People wanna see, people wanna know. People wanna know. All right. So good. Oh, I love it. Hey, you know, we are in our, uh, this is the first time we've done a series that's lasted an entire year. Obviously, we've done like a, uh, a little mini series uh, within the bigger series, but the whole year the focus has been on discipleship. We have a website that's dedicated just to what we teach and believe about discipleship. It's letspractice.com. If you've never been there, you should go there. Uh, if you're visiting with us tonight or if you're new to the church and you don't have one of these booklets, it's a gift. It's free to you. You can see anybody in a blue shirt and they've got them in the cart in the back and we'd love for you to have them. And we're, we're, we're focusing in on two of what we call our 12 pathways uh, for, uh, started last week, leading us up through Thanksgiving, scripture, prayer, worship, fasting, accountability, relationship, gathering, reaching, stewardship, generosity, rest, and service. We're talking specifically about stewardship and generosity. Stewardship is about you living with a mindset and a mentality that everything that you have belongs to God. And are you living with an ongoing conversation with him of God, am I using what you've entrusted to to me the way that you would want? Generosity is specifically how much of what he's entrusted to you does he want you to give away. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 reads this way. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. I introduced you to this phrase last week. It's my treasures in heaven are dependent upon my stewardship of the possessions God has entrusted to me and my generosity with giving a portion of those possessions away. This is my revelation. It's not my motivation. It's my revelation. It's not my motivation. If it's my motivation, then I'm only doing it because of what I'm going to get out of it. If treasures in heaven is my motivation, then, then I'm, I'm just in it for the prize. But it's supposed to be my revelation. When it's my revelation, what it does is it shifts my attention and my focus from the prize to the place. God talks about treasures in heaven. Does he want us to know they're a prize? Sure, I think so. I think rewards are real. We don't know what they're going to be, but I think there's going to be real rewards in heaven that are gonna have an eternal significance to us based on our stewardship and our generosity. But first and foremost, it's my revelation because he wants me to focus on the place where I'm headed. Listen to these verses in Colossians 3.1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, the place, not the prize, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Listen to these verses out of Hebrews 11:13 to 16. Now, th- this verse is coming after, and then there's more to follow about all the heroes of faith. It says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance, and they welcomed it. 
They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country, right? A place that they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, that's this temporal world, they could not have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. This is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Father, as as we continue on tonight and over these next several weeks uh, in this conversation about stewardship and generosity, God, we pray that you would find us faithful. That that deep inside of us, that there would be a, a, a desire not just a, a belief that everything that we have belongs to you, but a desire to live under that belief. A desire to, 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 to use what you've entrusted to us as, as if we're taking all of our direction from you all the time. Not just, not just God, when it's convenient. And we pray, God, that you would find in us an appetite for generosity that would give us pause. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, Amen. I read these stats last week. I, I want to read them again. 16 of 38 parables of Christ deal with money. One out of every 12 verses in the New Testament addresses money. And according to Christianity Today, the Bible has five, over 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but over 2,000 on money and possessions. Two, over 2,000. So continuing from last week, there's four questions that I consistently ask myself to make sure that my heart is in a good place when it comes to stewardship and generosity. Last week, we talked about being submitted and cheerful and how those two things hold each other in a healthy tension. I have to be willing to be submitted to what God wants me to do with his things. And then when he gives me instructions, right, I've got to be cheerful about it, not reluctant, not not doing it begrudgingly but submitted and cheerful. And then tonight we're going to talk about the idea of being both expectant and content. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. I wanna read an excerpt from this book by Robert Morris, The Blessed Life. There's times where this book gets, probably has some influence from some theological streams that we don't fully endorse, like the prosperity teaching. But, but I like this book because I feel like he really captures a lot of teaching that's lost to the church today about giving and tithing. And, and then I have a grace for people Sometimes when they teach about giving, when they've lived at a level and a measure of generosity that shocks the world. Listen to this story about his life. He says, I mentioned earlier that when Debbie and I got married, our combined gross income was $600 per month. That's an annual income of $7,200. After a few months of tithing and giving extravagantly to the Lord, Debbie got a different job that paid $18,000 a year. And about that same time, I began preaching and doing work in revivals. And that same year, my income from offerings was 32000 Thus together, our annual income went from $7,200 a year to $50,000 a year. In our second year of marriage, as we continued to give whenever directed by the Holy Spirit, Debbie quit her job in order to stay at home, and my income increased to $72,000 a year. Within three years, our income had risen to more than $100,000 a year by God's grace. Listen to what he says. And we were giving 70% of it away. Only keeping 30%, right? There's something significant to God about tenfold and a hundredfold returns. I've seen it throughout my whole life. I remember one occasion when I was at a missionary conference in the large Dallas Convention Center area. 
And we were sitting way up in the balcony section toward the back of the crowd, numbering over 10,000 people. We didn't have very much money at that point, but at offering time, I felt strongly that the Lord wanted me to give $100. It was going to be a step of faith to give that amount. The minister who was receiving the offering said, I I want you to pray and ask God to bless the offering that you're giving. And when he said that, I felt impressed to hold my offering up over my head as we prayed. And just as I did, a thought came to me, so I just prayed it. I said, Lord, I ask for a hundredfold return on this offering so that I can give even more to the kingdom. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but there was a man sitting on the arena floor up near the platform. And at that moment, I lifted my offering to the Lord with a heart full of gratitude. God spoke to him and told him to turn around and to look into the crowd. And as he turned around, he noticed way back in the upper reaches of the arena, a tiny figure of a man with his hands raised to the Lord. And the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, I want you to give that man $10,000. Later, the man found me and gave me a check for $10,000, exactly 100 times the amount that I had just given. Now, please understand what I'm saying. The money is not the point, right? This is important because this is what we're teaching in this series. The money is not the point. It's the joy that we receive from giving. It's the power that comes from obedience. I'm not presenting a giving as a get-rich scheme. On the contrary, listen to what he says. I'm presenting it as a lay-down-your-life challenge. A lay-down-your-life challenge. I like reading this book because he lives in this place of submission and cheerfulness. Now, it doesn't mean that God's going to ask you and I to do those kinds of things. It doesn't mean that he's going to ask us to move in those measures of generosity. It doesn't mean that he's going to ask us to move with those percentages. But what I do know this, he's going to ask you to do something. He's going to ask me to do something. God has a plan for his stuff that he's entrusted to us. He has a plan for what percentage we're supposed to keep and what percentage we're supposed to give away. And that might look different for each person. The question is, are you willing to do what he says? And then when he tells us what he wants us to do, are we willing to do it with a glad and a cheerful heart? Submitted and cheerful. Tonight we're going to talk about being expectant and content. All four of these questions, right, break up into two groups. They each hold each other in a healthy tension in my life. I'm supposed to be expectant, but I'm also supposed to be content. All right, so we have like a little participation here. What's a time in your life where you were filled with great expectation? Adam, we'll let you go first. Right? Because you are... Gonna get married. When? Friday. Yeah, to her, right? Just in case you're wondering. He, in here, right? So right now his heart is filled with expectation, overflowing. Just helping you out, brother. Just helping you out. All right, somebody else. A time when you've been filled with expectation. So, gonna have a baby. Absolutely. Anybody? Feel a little expectation, can I have a baby? Not that you're having a baby now, although you're ready to have your baby now, right? She's like, let's just, come on. Maybe not right now, everybody else is saying. Everybody else is saying. Somebody else, when your heart was filled with expectation, a time in your life, Jordan. Waiting for job promotions, right? And in the military, that's right, there's, they, you might qualify, but there's only a certain number that they can give out, and am I gonna be the one that gets it? Somebody else, a time when your heart's been filled with just great expectation in life, something that you were waiting for? Stan. 12th of November, 1987. The night before Betsy got married. Night before you and Betsy got married. Come on. And you guys have been married for how long? It'll be 30 years on the 13th of 
30 years. Come on. So good, Stan. Somebody else. Amber. Uh, Starting a business. Starting a business, yeah. Expectations about, is it going to be successful? Am I doing the right thing? I see some more hands over here. Anybody else on the side before I shift back over? Greg? Moving. Moving. You've done a little of that, right, in your day. Come on. Christmas morning, right? Come on. It took a little while to get to that one. I thought that was going to be quick. Yes, ma'am. Graduation. Yes, absolutely. Which, would, anyone in particular for you? Yeah, pharmacy school graduation. Come on, Scotty. Thanksgiving dinner, preach, come on, there you go. So we just pause for a moment, right? Because it's coming for all of us, Garland. When I turned 18. When you turned 18, come on, yes, I like it. Sharon. Yes, putting your time in, right, and waiting for your first grandbaby to be born. So good, right? All of us, we could just keep thinking about moments in our life where there's this, this feeling of expectation because we know that something good is coming. We're convinced that it's coming. We, we know that, 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 you know, there's times like what, what Jordan was talking about where we, we don't know what the outcome's going to be, but we're hopeful nonetheless, Right? And then there's other times where we know it's impossible for it to be anything but good, right? It's, it's that we know that we know that we know that something good is coming and it's just a matter of time before it gets here. One of my life verses is Psalm 27, 13 of I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Listen to this story out of Luke. Chapter 1, it's beginning in verse 5, it says, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments. Right? That's a powerful thing to be spoken over your life. Careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week and as was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot, which means it was by lottery, by random, right? They would pick and that was their way of turning something out of, taking something out of their control and putting it into God's hands. So by lot, he was the one who was chosen. And while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. And while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness. Come on, that's good, right? You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know this is the birth of the John the Baptist, who was the great prophetic voice that preceded Christ, and he broke the 400 years of prophetic silence that existed between the Old Testament and the New. 
He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God, and he will be a man with the, with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Now Zacharias said to the angel, how can I be sure that this will happen? I'm an old man. My wife is also well along in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel, which is, there's an explanation point here. He's a little, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God, and it was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Now, you can continue reading on here in this story. It's in Luke chapter 1. But, and as you do, you will find that God took his voice from him until the day that his son was born. Why would God do that? Why would God be so apparently impatient with this man? Right? Didn't it say? Listen, we're righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. You would think that he would have been given a pass. You, you would think that Gabriel would say, you know what, I can see how this is a little bit hard to hear. You've been praying and waiting, your, you've been praying your whole life. And they got married probably in their late teens, right, back then. They've been praying and waiting for a child for decades, decades. So you would think that, that, that Gabriel would have said, I can appreciate that you're, that you're going to doubt a little bit and, and then would have tried, but he doesn't. He punishes him, takes his voice. I think this is one of the most profound stories in the Bible that deal with this idea of the responsibility that you and I have to tend to our heart so that we always live with a constant expectation that God is going to do something good for us. And then when the promise that something good is coming, we can be shocked, we can be surprised, but, but not in the way that we think that it's impossible for it to come. It's a powerful story because it says to you and it says to me that God has an expectation of us, that our heart lives on the precipice of his goodness coming to us no matter how long we've been waiting. That, that we live as if it's going to happen in the next moment, even if we've been waiting for decades to see it come to fruition. And this story doesn't have anything to do with giving specifically but our heart has everything to do with giving always. Because if you don't nurture in your heart an expectancy for the goodness of God and the favor of God, the moments God asks you to step into places of generosity that give you pause, that you will shrink back. But when I'm expectant, that God is good. We came out of this little mini-series on the Lord's Prayer, right? It, it begins with this idea that I believe that he always has my best interest at heart, it, right? That the Lord's Prayer is really 10 declarations of praise more than it is about petition. And the, and the idea about give us this day our daily bread is about this declaration of trust. I trust the portion that you've given to me. When God asks us to step into moments of generosity, when he makes demands of us in regards to stewarding the material things that he's given to us, something inside of my heart has got 
got to say, I'm expecting the goodness of God to come that I will never be able to outrun his favor. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they, are, they share freely and they give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For the God is the one who provides the seed for the farmer and then the bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those in need, they will thank God, right? Which means that we're not in it for the credit we get. We're in it for the glory that it brings to our creator. Mark 10, 29 to 30. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now and in return a hundred times will receive now, not just Rewards in heaven, but reward today. A hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution, right? It's not always going to be easy, Jesus said. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Am I expectant? Am I anticipating God's favor and blessing? Am I submitted, right? Am I cheerful? And am I expectant? Always anticipating God's favor and blessing in spite of what my circumstances might say, especially if my circumstances say otherwise. What holds expectation in balance is this last question, am I content? You see, being submitted and being cheerful, they hold each other in a healthy tension. Being expectant and content hold each other in a healthy tension. If I'm only ever expectant, expectancy can easily become an attitude and a sense of entitlement. And that's where the whole prosperity theology that took the church sideways for a long time and still does in some ways today, although I think we've recovered in some measure. But it was, it was expectancy that became entitlement, right? Contentment without expectancy becomes false humility. Contentment without expectancy becomes false humility, it's, it's the rebirthing of the monastic movement is that the less I have, the more glory God gets. God wants my heart to learn how to make room for things that pull and tug against each other. Am I content? Luke 12, 15 reads this way. Then he said, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. See, if I only read these verses that dealt with contentment, you would leave with one mindset mentality. And if I only read the verses that dealt with expectation, you would leave with a different mindset and mentality. Sometimes as we're reading the Bible, it feels as though it's contradicting itself. But if ever you find yourself in a place where it feels like the Bible is contradicting itself, it's not, it's balancing us. It's balancing us. It's not contradicting itself. It's trying to create a tension in our lives that keeps us on the right path. This 
word here in the Greek where he says, beware of every kind of greed. In the Greek, it's pleonoxia. It's two words, as is most language oftentimes, putting words together to make one. It's derived from the word pleon, which means more, and echo, which means to have. And so in the Greek, it literally means beware of a feeling and a desire in your heart to always have more. Meaning that what I, it's, it's never enough what's in front of me now. I must have more. Judas was guilty of pleonoxia because greed is not always material, material focused. Judas wanted Jesus to do more and be more in the sense that he wanted him to do something different than he came to do. See, so when we understand it that way, what we realize is that pleonexia, which gives us this word greed, is really an infringement upon the sovereignty of God. The reason why Judas got into trouble is that he was trying to push Jesus into doing something that was not his calling, right? Because he did not trust in the sovereignty of God. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, we've got to say, I'm trusting that he's perfect, I'm not, he's divine, I'm human, I'm trusting that he knows what he's doing. The same thing happens with pleonexia when it comes to my material possessions, because at some point I have to be willing to accept what we talked about in the Lord's Prayer service, that all of us have what I believe to be a material destiny. And if we're not careful, we'll look at somebody else's material destiny and begin to feel as though God has shortchanged us and did not give us enough. Contentment means, God, I trust that when you were deciding measures of wealth in people's lives that you knew I wasn't left out, I wasn't forgotten, that you have a destiny for me in every sense that includes my material well-being. Pleonexia. Jesus says, guard against every kind of it because ultimately your life is not measured by how much you own. First Timothy 6.10 reads this way. Listen to what he says. Paul writing his young protege. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Listen to Philippians 4.10-13. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. And I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need. Love this about Paul. Not that I was ever in need. Have you ever read the epistles? He was in need all the time. When you read the list of stuff that he suffered for the sake of the gospel, right? When when you open up a dictionary for need, it should just have that list of stuff that Paul endured. What does he say? I was never in need. For I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation whether it's with a full stomach or empty, whether it's with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. It's one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. 
We, we like to talk about I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as a verse to talk about I'm going to change my, 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 my situation is going to change. There's other verses in the Bible for that. This is not one of them. Paul's talking about I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and the sense that because I know my situation is not going to change and he's giving me strength to endure in it. So we were, we were painting yesterday. It looks so good in there, right? You should just go take a peek. It, they, Jen and Camp, their team did an amazing job. So we were in there painting last night. It was me and Cam and Jordan Kemble were, were painting in, in, in one room and, and, uh, and there was music playing and, and I realized that I have a painting theme song. I do. David Pastor, oh gosh. Can you put his picture back up there again? All right, no. I have a painting theme song when it comes to you inspecting my work. And it's Bette Midler's song from a distance, right? Or, or it's police, don't stand so close to me, right? So when you go into the room that I was working in, if you just peek in, you go, wow, might have been a professional painter in here. If you step into the room or possibly get a ladder, you're gonna go, good God, was the, were the kids actually the ones that were painting in here, unsupervised? And they just closed the door and let them do whatever they wanted. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing how the imperfections become apparent when you get close. But from a distance, don't stand so close to me, it looks really good. For some of us, that's how we want our relationship with God to be. Don't, don't stand so close to me from a distance. We, we, we think that, that maybe then he won't see. How, how about relationships with people in the church that we call home? We don't show up for life groups so oftentimes because it's the from a distance, don't stand so close to me. We don't like to go on the men's getaway or go to the ladies' brunt. See, in a place like this, this is safe because it's from a distance. In a room like this on Saturday nights, this is a great place to start, but if this is all that you ever do, then you're, then you're living a life of don't stand so close to me. Not only do I need to have a sense of God, I want to feel you right here and pointing out every imperfection in me that needs to be addressed. And then we also need to pursue relationships with other people who love us enough and are close enough to us to ask us the hard questions and oftentimes say things to us that we don't want to hear. Sometimes it's because we have blind spots and we don't see the imperfections and we need other people to see them. Sometimes it's because we see them all too well and we need other people to challenge us to do something about it. And so many times, where these blind spots and where these expectations come in, it's with our material possessions. It's how much we're consuming and how much we're giving. Don't stand so close to me. When we're paying our bills and there's an opportunity to, am I gonna give it the measure I know I'm supposed to or am I gonna keep this for myself from a distance? When it comes time to step into moments where you can be a blessing to other people, you and I have got to be willing to have a transparent heart 
Because if you're not content with what you have, then what you have is never gonna be enough and you're never gonna step into the moments of generosity that God has called you to. And it's not just about here, it's about treasures in heaven. Not because it's your motivation, but because it's your revelation. Tomorrow's a special day for me. My dad passed away, it'll be three years ago, this Thanksgiving. Tomorrow would, is his birthday and my parents' anniversary. He's a smart guy, right? Got married on his birthday. He's like, what can I do to make sure I never forget this thing? Right? He was born in 1933, married in 1960. Tomorrow would have been his 84th birthday, would have been the 57th wedding anniversary for my parents. When he passed, they were married for 54 years. It's four years longer than I've even been alive, right? I was thinking about my, my dad today when I was praying through this message. I have some great memories of my dad. I shared a lot of them for the, when we did man church in here, we were talking about keepsakes and scripts. I, I had not originally planned to share this one, but as I was praying this afternoon, it made me laugh because my, my dad would, we, we always had dinner together as, as, as a family. We just, we were, our, our schedules had to adjust to be at the dinner table, right? Always. And at the end of dinner, every, every time, Every time, without exception, my dad would get up and he would go give my mom a kiss. Every time. And I remember the first time when Vanessa and I got married and we had our first dinner together in our house. I got up and gave her a kiss and did what my dad did. I went into the other room, right? <laughs> and she said, whoa, 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 whoa. Where are you going? If I'm cooking, you're at least cleaning I'm like, Dad? She's like, oh, he can't help you here, right? <laughs> leave and cleave, baby, leave and cleave. So now we have children, and I've delegated those duties to them, right? It's just a, a lesson in leadership. <laughs> I remember every month seeing my dad sit at our dining room table, balancing the checkbook, paying the bills, calculator out, glasses on, and paperwork everywhere, every month. My dad was, was born into a poor tenant farmer family in the 30s. He worked hard, earned a modest living. My mom took a, a job outside the home when we were older to be able to put all three of, of us, my sister and my brother, through college. And I was thinking today, and there's some things I, I have no memory of my father ever doing. I've never heard him say a bad word ever in my entire life. Not ever. And there were certainly occasions for some to come. Somebody, I'm not going to mention Jen Miro's name or, <laughs> or Kim Walls, her friend. They were joking about the, the painting. They said, maybe we should have a curse jar in here for the painting project to help raise money for the nursery. And I said, well, that jar better be empty. We're in the nursery. Come on, right? Never heard him. Not ever, not one time. Never heard him raise his voice to my mother. Not ever. Not ever. Not one time. Not one time. Ever. My entire life. 
I never heard my father speak ill of another person. Not ever. Not one time. Not one time. Ever. I never heard my father complain about what we didn't have. Not one time. Not ever. Not ever. Now, we've lived a little bit of life, and so if you're married and you've got kids and you've got bills to pay, there is opportunity to complain. Are you with me? There is occasion to complain. I never heard him. Not ever. Not one time. Contentment is a powerful, powerful place for your heart to reside. My father was one of the most contented people that I have ever known. Am I expectant and am I content? Satisfied with God's provision for today? Am I anticipating God's favor and blessing? Am I satisfied with God's provision for today? Am I anticipating God's favor and blessing and satisfied with God's provision for today? Invite the worship team to come back. When you get to genealogies in the Bible, don't push past them too quickly. Because they're not just there to teach us history. They're there to tell us something powerful about life. Genealogies are in the Bible because Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10 is in the Bible. You must not bow down to them or worship them talking about idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God and will not tolerate your affection for any other God. I lay the sins of parents upon their children. And their entire family is affected. That's another sermon for another time. Even children to the third and the fourth generations who reject me. But listen to verse 10, which is what we're talking about right now. I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey me. I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey me you got to ask yourself an important question tonight, and that important question is this. What are you setting into motion with stewardship and generosity? What are you setting into motion? For the generations that are coming after you, what have you set into motion by way of a momentum spiritually in this world? Am I submitted? Am I cheerful? Am I expectant? And am I content? Stand with me. Father, I pray that, that as we step into this moment of worship, that, that these four questions are going to press us hard, that they're going to challenge us, that they're going to be like Gabriel standing in front of us, like the angel of the Lord was standing in front of Zechariah, making some promises and making demands. Because we know, God, it's not just our lives that are at stake. It's generations to come after us. We have a responsibility not just to guard our own heart, but we have a responsibility, as you say, that for everything flows from our heart, and that's just not flowing out of us into our life. It's flowing out of us into generations. May it be, O oh God, that there are treasures in heaven for us, a revelation 
a revelation of the place, a place that waits for us through our vow of devotion to Christ that is perfect in every way. And may it be, O oh God, that you would find us faithful, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, being willing to walk and obedient to all of your commands, everyone, for your greater glory, and Christ for your name's sake. And it's in his name we pray. Come on, let's worship together.